welcome back to another episode of the Perception Coach podcast with me, John Prince. We're going to be diving in, shifting perspectives so that you can love who you are, find meaning in what you do, and really tap into your full potential in life. Let's get into today's episode. Today's guest is a very good friend of mine, Dave Henson, MBE. He's had an incredible journey so far. He joined the army in 2008 and was deployed to Afghanistan in 2010 as a Royal Engineer Search Advisor. He was responsible for the coordination, planning and execution of improvised explosive device search operations. In 2011, Dave stepped onto an IED and lost both his legs. Dave returned to the UK to recover and do rehabilitation at Headley Court, where he then used sport as a key driver his recovery and since then has achieved some remarkable feats including being captain of the 2014 Invictus Games in London which he won gold in the T2 200 meters which he successfully defended in 2016. He won medals in the European and World Championships, won an Olympic bronze medal in the Rio Paralympic Games, he attended the Royal Wedding, he is married with three beautiful children Dave has gone on to earn a PhD in amputee biomechanics and is now using his knowledge and experience to develop and improve improve prosthetic limbs for amputees. Dave inspires others as a speaker and has made several TV appearances and received awards and praise from key figures, including David Cameron and Prince Harry. I'm just scratching the surface of what Dave is about here. I know him very well, so I'm looking forward to hearing Dave share about his journey with us. Welcome, Dave, and thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me. Hello, mate. It's great to be here. After that introduction, I don't think you need to speak to me anymore. <laughs> we'll just end it there, shall we? Yeah, That's done. it. Sorted. Um, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, pal. I'm loving the summer weather. Happy as anything. It's delightful, isn't it? Yeah, just uh, making the most of this, the, the couple of days that we get. That's it. <laughs> cool. So, um... Look, I'd love to hear about what you're working on at the moment as well, but I'm really curious to dive into your journey and where do we begin, right? So what I'd love to know is what inspired you to, to join the army? Uh, well, I think I, I remember quite vividly, you know, John, you and I went to, to secondary school together. Um, and if you remember in year 10, you're getting all these... Uh, careers visits and careers talks where you start planning you know where you want to go what a levels you need to take to achieve the career that you want i remember the army coming into school to do like a a, a little day visit uh, and they took people who were interested or potentially interested in a career in the military uh, away to some army base somewhere and uh, took us through like an assault course and some laser shooting and you know some of the fun stuff that the military do and i think from then i was like yeah this is something which uh, i'd really like to do smart so my family, my, my granddad served in World War II, he was in the Air Force, uh, and, and sort of his generation and, and, and those before him, uh, you know, so many of them served in the military, there's always been this element of military history in my family. My dad was a, a defence contractor, so he, he worked on communication systems for all elements of, uh, of the UK military, so it's always been something which has uh, been in my life, be that in the background or, or in the forefront, but it was really that sort of careers visit in year 10 which inspired me to pursue it. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to go into engineering. So I went off and uh, did my A-levels and then went and, st- and studied mechanical engineering uh, at, at university and then went through the, the selection process to become 
an army officer and ended up joining uh, the Royal Engineers. Nice. Yeah. So it was kind of like having a, an experience in, of some of the fun stuff as well, the, the exciting stuff that kind of um, led you down that path. And then having that family background as well. Um, yeah, that's it. They sold me on the con. They gave me the good <laughs> stuff and hid away all yeah. the bad stuff. Reel you in me. with the exciting stuff. That's it. I get Reeled it. me in. They absolutely <laughs> went fishing that day. They caught me. They got you. And also, so you were able to use your your engineering um, like knowledge and your your desire to kind of learn about that as well. And you know, I know you're you're a smart guy. I remember at school we went to school together, and I I would copy your homework on the way to school on the bus because you were able to just do it on the bus on the way in, and then I had no clue what I was doing. So. I would pick up on some of that. Um, so you're able to kind of use that as well, um, the, the yeah. parts that you're interested in, and then bring that into it. So then what was like the first steps like kind of going into the army and what did you need to learn and were there any challenges that you had at that point? Well, the, so the primary role, particularly in the officer branch of the, of the military, is always about leadership. It's always about being able to uh, to take soldiers uh, from from junior soldiers all the way through to senior soldiers and give them what they need to be able to deliver on a particular mission on the battlefield. Um, and and everything from officer training is, is all about developing that leadership. So the first steps in uh, in my route in the military it was a twelve month um, leadership course at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and, and that's what you have to go through to get your regular service commission. So it was twelve months uh, in Sandhurst. Uh, in, in Camberley, learning everything about uh, about leadership, everything about uh, being a soldier. So you start off with, a, you know, what looks very much like basic training. So it's learning uh, your drill, your rifle handling, how, how to be a soldier in the field, all the way through to, to military history, doctrine, um, and the higher elements of leadership and understanding the bigger picture of, of politics and defence politics and, and world, world and global politics as well. Uh, so you can frame um, and provide context for your soldiers about what it is that you, you're going off and doing. And then following that that 12 month leadership period, that's when you go off and you, you do your specific to arm training. So then I did another seven months of training uh, in the Royal Engineers um, Young Officers Training training course so uh, another seven months learning all about how to operate as an officer in the royal engineers so it's, the royal engineers are, are are there to enable the army and, and other services to to live move and fight so we do everything from building roads and building bridges to providing uh, drinking water sanitation uh, to providing uh, operating basis so we do all, all of that construction side of what the military has to offer uh, and some elements of that are professional so it's you know, as you alluded to it's going back and it's using those engineering qualifications from university to work out you know, how to build bridges making sure that they're structurally sound uh, all the way through to the the more combat orientated parts of the royal engineers is demolitions it's it's elements of bomb disposal those kind of things uh, so a really in, intensive period in 19 months of training before you even really see your first soldier yeah yeah so like super super prepared for what's ahead over quite a period of time and it sounds very intensive too and you know you're someone that I've always seen as a leader someone who goes first and takes charge and you know takes action um what were some of the the things that you learned about leadership um, um anything you, you learned that really stood out for you um, I guess it's, you know, I guess it, it probably comes back to the, some of the principles about, um, you know, putting others first, about honesty, integrity, those kind of things. You know, 
how it is that people interact with you as a leader, how people will respond to you as a, as a leader. You know, selfless commitment is one of the, the leadership buzzwords in the military, but that's all about putting others before yourself. So it's, mm. uh, I guess it's engendering in your soldiers um, that understanding that you're going to do everything for them to allow them to do your job. And I, I think from a military perspective, that's probably uh, the, the key thing to understand. You know, you, you might have this misconception that as a, as a leader in the military, you're just standing around shouting at people. Um, but from an officer's perspective, that's not what it's about. It's your soldiers that actually go out and do the day-to-day -day business. And that's the same regardless of what branch of the army you're in, whether you're in engineers or whether you're on fr in frontline infantry. It's the soldiers which need to go out and, and do the business and you're there as an officer to facilitate their ability um, and, you know, and facilitate their fighting spirit, their willingness to go off uh, and do that, that kind of stuff. So everything was geared towards um, providing your soldiers with that sense of trust that what you're going to do or what you do is in their best interests. Um, so I think those were probably the, the key bits. It was that real understanding of, of how to put others before yourselves how to see uh what requirements there are and implement those requirements how to provide the right kit the right training um the right motivation the right morale um for them to go off and do their their job and you do that through uh, an understanding of the wider vision uh, and inspiring this sense of um unified purpose within the team that you're you're mm -hmm. leading uh, yeah. and it's what i've tried to do since is you know in all of my occupations be that athletics or through the Invictus Games or through my work here at Imperial College now it's about uh trying to engender that shared sense of purpose so you can move forward together as a team yeah I think there's some there's some real key things kind of jumped out at me the in terms of the selfless leadership and putting others first because you know the the stereotypical idea of a leader is they're going first and they get other people to follow them but it really sounds like it's creating other leaders and making them stronger so that you can then trust them um, as well as them trusting you as well. Um, yeah. And what, what was the what was the kind of collective purpose that you had that that shared kind of vision or purpose that people were able to come together through? Well, I mean, again, it depends on the, the situation, but certainly, you know, for let's take our, our operational tour in Afghanistan, for example, you know, we were going off in into what is a what was a very high risk role you know there were so many soldiers getting killed or injured through uh through through bomb blasts through uh the effects of these improvised explosive devices and it was our job as a team to go out and and search and dig in the ground for these bombs you know it was it was inherently high risk uh, and there was a, a high casualty rate it's you know at some point it was like one in six people in this role were, were getting injured or killed so it was wow. insanely high yeah um and I needed to persuade my team that going off and, and doing this was was a good idea. Um, so we, you know, for me and my, my small team, so it was just me plus six soldiers, just needed to create this understanding that what we were doing was important. Um, and for me, I, I never really, I never really wanted to be an infantry soldier. I never really wanted to go around shooting people. I don't think I was particularly geared up towards that as a person, um, mm. which is, you know, that and the, the qualifications were some of the reasons why I joined the engineers as opposed to any kind of frontline combat branch um but for me i felt that what we do was valid and it, and it had a purpose what what we were going off to do was to create a safe environment for primarily our you know our, our, our combined soldiers to to operate in so be they uh, american british estonian whatever it was our you know our, our international collaboration afghanistan was providing a safe environment for them to work in 
but further to that, it was about creating a safe environment for, for civilians in Afghanistan mm -hmm. also to operate in. You know, we were a very highly trained team and we were going off to provide a very valuable role that created a safer environment for everyone. And if we could do this uh, and create this environment, then ultimately there'd be less people with no legs and less people um, and more people alive uh, as a result. And the communication of that clear and simple message to my team, I think, helped our, our ability to go out and, and do this this job that we were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And it, it was intense, it was tiring. You know, 12, 16 hour days, easily on regular occasions where you just slow and steady plodding through some pretty horrific conditions, trying to find improvised explosive devices. And, you know, you have to have that, that shared sense of purpose. Otherwise it's so easy to just, you know, call bullshit on the whole thing and, and say that this is not, not worth it. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. So it's really seeing that bigger picture, keeping you guys safe, looking at the, the safety of other people. And when when you were out searching for these devices, what, what was that like for you? Uh, draining, really, really draining. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it's when you so when you get shot at, for example, there's a uh, an intense spike in adrenaline. Um, you know, there's this, this huge um, hormonal reaction to whatever's going on in front of you. Um, so it's, a, it's an inter instantaneous high level stress. When you're out searching for devices, there's this constant underlying but low level uh, stress that something is going to be there. At the next step that you take, every single step that you take, you, you feel that something's going to be there. Um, and that's really where that, that level of draining comes from. So you're, you're having to maintain this high state of, of, of alertness um, over long, long periods of time, day after day. Mm. Um, so it was an incredibly emotionally draining experience um, simply because of that. You're operating at, at a, an elevated level of stress for extended periods of time in intense heat, with dehydration, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, we were, there were some days we were carrying 45 or 50 kilos on our back through 30 degree heat. It's, it was insane, wow. the kind of um, environment that we had to work in, but it was that elevated level of stress. And you can see it in the way that, uh, you know, me and the soldiers react to, you know, uh, teasing or, or, or small events that right. might have happened, falls yeah. or whatever. It's just this high level of stress. So, it, you know, it, it was a stressful environment, but it was also one of the most enjoyable periods of my life. Um, you know, I, I had the great fortune to be with such a small team. As an officer, you're normally commanding a minimum of about 30 people. Um, you know, the, the, the first job I had in the military, I had 45 soldiers under my command. So moving from that to a team of six, you get these real close um, connections and relationships, which, you know, we've maintained to this day. Uh, so I was really fortunate. And, you know, in these kind of stressful situations, you inevitably tend to dark humour to make them more bearable. Mm -hmm. And just some of the, you know, those fun times were, were, were very memorable. Yeah. And so uh, is one thing I remember. Um, I came to visit you in the in the hospital after um, you'd stepped on, on the IED and you're recovering. And I remember you saying, um, I can't wait to get out of here so we can get legless. And it was like, that was the first time I was seeing you. And I was like, wow, like you've got that level of humor um, at that point. Is that something then that you would use to, to get through these challenging times? Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to add humor into it. And I, I think there's a certain element of the, the military dark humor as well, where you, you love to make other people feel as uncomfortable as possible because it provides this just, 
you know, almost childish level of amusement for yourself is, you know, yeah. in the hospital environment, especially it's quite boring, but you know, the, the, the humor has to be there um, for a start. But I, I guess primarily it comes down to, you know, the vast majority of, of soldiers who are wounded in, in combat, particularly in Afghanistan, their outlook on life is almost unanimous um, because it was such a dangerous environment to be in at the time. The fact that we came home at all, um, was a bonus so we, we certainly see ourselves as uh, as being blessed as being lucky to come home in you know even if it was in this injured state that, that we did come home and we were lucky to come home at all uh, because the, the the outlook and the reality of of a situation where you've had both your legs blown off should be that you're you're dead you know your, your body is not designed to to be able to handle that kind of um, that kind of insult to it um, so we should have we should have died and we should have been been brought home in a box, you know, and, yeah. and it would have been, you know, not the hospital that you'd be attending, but, but a funeral. So there was a, a real sense of, of luck and good fortune associated with it, which allows you to then have this positive framing of the whole experience. You know, if we, if we'd come back and we felt that, you know, we were the unlucky ones and, you know, how could this happen to me? I'm so unfortunate. Then it, it creates this negative framework for the for the rest of your your life, really. But it wasn't that. It was a, a positive framework that it, that our experiences were set in, uh, and that was reflected amongst most of the troops. So you you then get this shared experience in hospital where you've got, you know, we were at a, a hospital probably with 45, 50 people in it, most of whom with similar injuries, all of whom considering themselves very lucky, and all of them using dark humor to get through it. It was you know, a, a, a pretty inspirational and uh, chaotic situation to be in. Yeah, that, that's incredible how, you know, you can, not not just you, but so many of you looking at the situation in the, in a positive frame of mind and looking at the fact that you've um, had stepped on a, on a bomb and then you're still alive and how amazing that is. To be able to take that perspective is, is just fascinating to, to hear. And um, do you, is it that culture then of everybody having that mindset and that kind of rubbing off on each other? Is that something that you developed yourself? Uh, I think it's a bit of a culture there. It's certainly not, you know, I mean, I have my own approach to it. You have to have an individual approach to it uh, at certain points. You know, you can't be with everyone else all the time. But, you know, by by far and away, that was the, the overriding viewpoint. You know, most people felt like that. Obviously, there were some people who 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 didn't think like that and, and had a different approach to their injuries. And, and the reality is they, they achieve less as a result. Um, but the, the ones with that positive mindset, they're the ones that you, you want to be a, around and um, they're the ones that you want to associate yourself with and push through these rehabilitation processes um, and rehabilitation steps with. Um, but certainly for me, like, you know, I had a choice in hospital. Do I accept that this injury has happened? and go with it or do I not accept it and what are the options that you're left with if you choose to not accept it you know you, you're either going to go and just top yourself because you don't want to be around anymore mm. or you're just going to live in this life of misery so it, it felt like a very straightforward binary choice of yes or no so obviously I went with yeah I'm just going to accept this and let's go on with it and I think it's yeah you know, I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever I think you know you and I have shared so many good times over this last decade since I I lost my legs and it's the same with with you with my family other friends whatever I've had some great experiences and I'm so glad that uh, of those two choices I went with the positive one and, and framed my outlook on life based on that because what what would the alternative be It'd be miserable wouldn't it yeah 
I mean, logically, it, it makes so much sense. But in terms of being able to like process that and be able to shift to that perspective, was that something that for you happened, you know, overnight, you made that click in your head and, it, and you shifted? Or was that was there something that had to be processed for you to be able to accept that and, and then look at it, look at the situation in that positive light? It felt so looking back on it, it felt like something that happened overnight, but it was certainly something that happened, you know, in those first few weeks in hospital, um, you know, and they were emotional times. There were lots of ups and downs in hospital, lots of tears. Um, but I, I, and the, there'll be other influencing factors which will have enabled me to be in the right positive mindset to, to make that logical choice. I remember there was one period where. Uh, obviously I'd lost a lot of blood in the incident and I'd gone and they'd given me a, a blood transfusion. So I had a couple of bags of, of blood in me uh, and the difference between how I was feeling and my, my mood from one day to the next was, you know, it was chalk and cheese. It was so different. So yeah. I think it was those kind of, there's a little bit of medical intervention, which put me from being in this sort of very, um, very much a casualty state, very much a, a sort of intensive care type of state into being in a positive mindset because my, my body had the, the nourishment that it needed. But if it, it, it did feel like an overnight, all right, let's just let's just get on with this now. Yeah. Uh, and I think there was probably some tears with my mum in there. And then that was it. Let's, let's move on and, and let's get out, get out of it. I kept getting in trouble in hospital. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've got the, the sort of uh, the honour of having it written into hospital policy that intensive care beds are not to be taken to the smoking area because um, uh, when I was in intensive care my, my boss came and stole my bed and took me to the smoking area so I didn't have a, a smoke <laughs> uh, and I kept getting told off by the nurse because I would try and I'd load all my like machines and bags onto my wheelchair and I'd try and sneak outside to the smoking area and they just kept catching me and kept telling me off but it was those kind of things. It was a little bit of a rebellious attitude, which I think was good for the other soldiers in the ward. Yeah. I, I, you know, I would, I'm not that obsessed with smoking. I just need to get out of there. I need to be out yeah. and moving about. Yeah. Uh, and it was a reason to go off and do so. Uh, yeah, it's now in hospital policy <laughs> about smoking and intensive care beds. Well, so is that re rebellious attitude and, you know, in line with the dark humour, it's, it's just doing things that feel right for you in the moment. Yeah. rather than having to play by the rules of what this is what we yeah. should do and do this and you know it's like that's fine but there's times where you need to play by your own rules in order to um, do what you need to do in that moment and that's it okay and and how do you, you know even today or and over the last 10 years do you have times where you still need to process the acceptance or is that like a it's there in your head now and nah, obviously there's still times um mm. you know there's physical limitations living with no legs of course there is yeah. um and there's still elements of day-to-day -day life uh, that are frustrating uh, and you just end up cursing the legs and then you get on with it um so doing a lot of building work like everyone else has over uh, over lockdown and there's, there's bits of my physical condition which make it more difficult to achieve the tasks uh which i want to set for myself which drag deadlines out and things like that yeah. um so it's easy to then be like you know, screw this these legs are, are absolute turd or whatever i need yeah. to you know bend them off or whatever but it's, it's usually it's, it's just a moment you know it's yeah. like everyone else will have a frustrating moment and everyone else has their their own ways of of dealing with stress i'll just usually have a have a whinge for a couple of minutes and then i'll just get on with it and yeah. everything's fine and my wife will tell me to stop being a knob and get on with it. <laughs> um, yeah yeah, yeah, I can yeah. I can um, empathise with that. My wife does the exact same thing. Yeah. Just, just get on with it. Yeah, like, get okay, on with it. Well. Then gutters need cleaning, so get on, <laughs> get on with it. 
yeah so but so it's it's understand that it's okay to feel like that it's okay to be yeah. frustrated it's okay to have those moments you know but process it have that that moan and then move on move forward yeah, okay. yeah i've got a mate who uh who used to be in human intelligence in the military and he describes it as uh what does he say he's been captured by your inner child or something i keep trying to like whenever i get in those moments and i revert to this childlike behavior i remember yeah. him and i just try and like be the adult in the situation i don't work very often yeah at least it's yeah. there it's going through my head yeah i, I think it can when, when we get triggered when we get um it feels like being taken over we can feel like we're just like a little kid and we're having yeah. a tantrum and and that's what's going on and for you know it can feel like we're out of control in that moment it's just being able to have that self-awareness to let the the thoughts settle and the emotions settle yeah. then you know it could be a few minutes later or maybe a few hours later you're then back to an adult <laughs> back in control or feel like <laughs> that for at least a, a period of time yeah. right so um yeah. all right so can i can i ask you about what it was like in the moment when you did step on the the id and and what that was like afterwards yeah, it's a real strange moment because obviously I never never stepped on a bomb before. Um, yeah. So your frame of reference is weird. Your frame of reference is Hollywood movies. That's the only thing that you've got um, because that's the only experience really of of people getting blown up. Unless you've you've been in a combat situation before and you've seen it happen to someone else in real life, your frame of reference is completely weird. Uh, and obviously, there's there's no real truth in Hollywood. Hollywood movies, especially in situations like this, but you see, you see it in so many action films, don't you? Where they step on the bomb and then they're like freezing, and yeah. they're like, "Right, I've just stepped on a bomb. I've heard the click. I need to do something about this." And then they get the bomb disposed to, and they dig out underneath, and everything is all fine, or the hero dies, or whatever. You know, like it's a real weird frame of reference. So that was my only frame of reference. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. So the operation that we were on, um, we were tasked to go and clear two compounds um which are, i guess is it's where it's where people in afghanistan live so usually they've got their their accommodation buildings and those accommodation buildings are surrounded by um by a wall and then outside of the wall is the is the is the farmland but the wall is the, the walled area inside the walled area is the compound uh, and then usually within that are a couple of buildings so uh, we've been been tasked to go off and, and clear a couple of compounds so these compounds have been used as firing positions by both uh, our international collaboration by ISAF uh, as well as the Taliban at various points over the, the period of, uh, of of the conflict in Afghanistan you know back and forth back and forth it been used they've been used regularly as places from which to launch offensive operations essentially uh, so they were considered very high risk areas for being seeded with improvised explosive devices but what we needed to happen from a political context in that area we needed uh, the locals to to be able to move back into their into their property to start farming their land again to create and um, and promote the, the micro economy that exists in in countries like afghanistan so that was the whole task we need to go in clear these to make sure it was safe for, for a family to move back in um and it was a a very quiet day it was a sunday um sunday 13th of february very very quiet um uh, blue skies everywhere which was um uh, which was unusual for given that in, in the last three weeks, we'd had the, the rainy season. So it'd been intense, heavy rain over the last three weeks. Um, so having a clear blue sky day was a, a real blessing. Um, but yeah, no no gunfire, not even in the distance, just a really, really quiet day. 
moved in, cleared the first compound, um, no problems at all, moved into the second compound. Um, we had the explosive search dog had gone in. They'd had a little sniff around and hadn't found anything. We'd have my search team go in. They'd had a little sniff around and hadn't found anything. And they'd moved into the inner areas of this compound just to, to, to check those areas for, for IEDs. I uh, then crossed the outer area to make sure that we still had uh, our infantry protection unit. They were still uh, within eyesight uh, and we could have uh, contact with them if we needed. Uh, turned around and that was it. Uh, next thing I knew, I was on the, on the floor, um, struggled to sit up. Uh, uh, and looked down at my legs and they were just in absolute pieces. Um, you know, it was that split second. There was no pause, there was no click, there was nothing. It was just one minute I was walking and the next minute I was on the floor. You know, I'd been blown up into the air, come back down, land on my head. Uh, I remember struggling to sit myself up, looked down, saw my legs. Um, my feet were still in their boots, but the, the, the leg between the knee and the foot was just completely shattered. So still hanging on, but just completely shattered. Bits of tibia poking out here and fibula poking out there uh, just not really uh, what you want to see in a pair of legs um, I remember like there's no no bravery from me whatsoever I was shocked by this uh, sight that was in front of me I just remember screaming and I sort of used my hands to push myself away from this uh, from what was in front of me and ended up backing up against the wall uh, and then my soldiers came into my field of view and that's when sort of uh, the training clicked in and I you know, realise what situation I was in. Uh, thankfully, we'd been hammering the medical training both before deploying to Afghanistan and during our, our, our training, our, our time in Afghanistan. So uh, my soldiers were incredibly well trained in, in uh, combat first aid, got the tourniquets on my leg straight away to stop the bleeding. Um, you know, we got on uh, the radio to to Get the helicopter in we got on the satellite phone to phone our own operations hq let them know what was going on um got everything sorted and and, and that was it it was you know i was stabilized remarkably quickly you know i was um, ready for transportation probably within about 10 minutes uh, wow. you know from tourniquets on morphine in water in uh, and we were just uh, uh sort of in a secure area just outside the compound just waiting for the helicopter to come and land uh, and take me away to hospital and just sort of sitting there genuinely drinking water smoking fags <laughs> while waiting for this chopper and it was a weird experience having a little bit of banter uh, the the combat medic that was so a higher level of medical training more like a paramedic that was attached to the infantry unit came in uh, we were bantering with him he has this little pocket drill which he uses to drill into your bone to stick a like a either a painkiller or an IV or I don't know what it is stick something in uh, and he couldn't get it in so we're like yeah it's because I'm so massive can't get this thing in <laughs> uh, but was, I don't know you're just having to banter and then the helicopter come um, weird weird time but 20 minutes from point of injury uh, to helicopter arriving and the helicopter turns up the the doctor who I've met since um, comes out of the helicopter we give him a debrief as to what's happened and he's like okay and then he sticks you in, puts, puts you under anaesthetic to prep you for surgery. And then they load you onto a helicopter. And that helicopter ride from where I was located to the main um, uh, military hospital in Afghanistan, uh, they're then prepping you for surgery. So 20 minutes, the helicopter arrived. And then within 37 minutes, I'm on the operating table. It's crazy quick. And then That's I was nice. awake a few hours later. Yeah. So, and how much of that training, was it like automatic or... 
you know, when it kicked in, when, when you kind of came round and, and saw what was happening? Yeah, like the, the soldiers were so well trained and that's the whole point in, in the way that the military does its training. You know, it is time after time after time, complete repetition, because really in those kind of situations, and I guess you'd understand it, is you don't want people to be thinking about what's in front of them. You just want them to yeah. be doing, yeah. um, because if you're, if you provide an opportunity for, for processing what's happened more, you know, more than just there's blood, stop the bleeding. Yeah. That's, that's what you want the thought process to be. You don't want it to be, that's my boss. That's my friend. That's Dave. You don't want to be thinking yeah. any of that. You just want them to be thinking catastrophic bleed, put a tourniquet on. That's it. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that's the real benefit of going through those extensive time after time after time training processes that when they saw me in that position, they saw a catastrophic, catastrophic bleed, they stuck a tourniquet on. That was it. Yeah. And then, you know, I lost comparatively minimal amount of blood. You know, I still lost a lot of blood, but I, I wasn't on the edge at any point. Yeah. And was that the same thing going through your mind in terms of organising people and letting them know what you need at the same point? Was that kind of the same process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I when I was there, I was telling them, you need to get on the radio. I was telling them my my ID number. I was telling them you need to get on the staff phone. I'm telling them you need to take pictures. I didn't need to tell them any of this. So my training was kicking in and I was telling this stuff, yeah. but my soldiers were, were perfectly well equipped to do all of that on their own. I think yeah. my role in this was, was a distraction from my own situation, whereas they were the ones doing it and had it all in hand anyway. Um, so yeah, it, it was a, a training response, definitely. But yeah. the reality is I didn't need to, you know, I could have been unconscious and I would have been in exactly the same position. But yeah, how, how incredible that you were still leading and still being able to give those instructions in that state and of mind and body and everything that's going on. And then that same level of trust with your team as well, exactly what you were talking about earlier in that preparation um, of leadership and then having a team of people that are, you know, able to do the same thing and able to lead themselves. Incredible. It's a good tour. Wow. So I know we, we've got a little bit of time left, so I just wanted to, to, dive into once you came back and and processed everything and started to do the rehab and I know sport has been huge for you over the last um, 10 years or so um, tell me a little bit about that yeah so the military employs uh, a rehabilitation system uh, which is designed to be as similar uh, to day-to-day pre-injury military life as possible um, now, sport is a big part of life in the, in the military and the army in general. Um, throughout your training and throughout your time in, in a regiment, you're, you have allocated time where you go and you take part uh, in sport. And that's all about developing uh, teamwork, um, team principles, that kind of stuff, as well as obviously benefits with physical fitness and, and enjoyment and um, esprit de corps. You know, everything is about teamwork, really. Um, so you have this allocated period of a week where you do sport and that was no different in the the rehabilitation environment they allocated periods of every day where you went off and did um, different types of sport swimming or wheelchair basketball wheelchair rugby whatever it might be um, all of which was designed to try and uh, you know promote this teamwork again but primarily to 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 make you as an individual feel like you were in as normal a situation as possible whilst obviously maintaining uh, and gaining the physical benefit that you naturally get from doing sport so it was a a way of psychologically 
physically rehabilitating you, but also giving you physical rehabilitation benefits whilst uh, not really knowing, you know, you're not in a physiotherapy class, you're in a sports class, so you're having fun, but you're getting benefit at the same time. Yeah. Um, so sport was always from pre-injury, post-injury was always part of my day-to-day life. Um, but for me as, uh, as an officer, I really valued, this is pre-injury, I really valued the time where I could just go out for long runs because I felt that, that those periods of um, extended physical activity are so beneficial for gaining clarity of thought. Um, and you will have found it in long cardio sessions. I find it now with my work. If I need to yeah. really process some information, I can't be mm. in front of a computer to do it. I, I, I need to be to have most of my mind occupied with something else. And it just provides a little bit of, of or at least my, most of my body occupied with something else. And it provides that freedom for your, your brain to operate. And, and do its processing so that was something which I really wanted to get back to so I, I was very very keen to get back onto running blades to be able to go out for a run that's all I wanted to do um, so I got my running blades about 10 months after I lost my legs and started running then uh, and then there was another psychological milestone for me where I wanted to be able to pass the army's fitness test before I was medically discharged from the military so like a it was a way of me being able to say to myself that I'm in a, the same or at least equivalent physical um, fitness condition as I was when I came in so I'm good to go uh, so I started training to, to pass that fitness test and as a result I, I, I obviously became good at running um, and it happened that you know, passing that fitness test coincided with the launch of the Invictus Games so me being good at running naturally led me down uh, the sprinting path and the success of the Invictus Games naturally led me on to being ultimately selected for the GB Paralympics team and taking me off to Rio um, but all of it stemmed from this uh, this ideal of, of just trying to gain clarity of thought physical fitness is a, is a huge part of my life anyway but it was that ability to go off and gain clarity of thought and have that freedom and escape from from day-to-day -day life and that's what sort of sent me down this path and you know it's just one of those things in life where you you take one approach and it leads to something else doesn't it yeah and so so there were so many things there combined that sound like they work so well in terms of getting you in routine so you're doing things keeping that routine similar to what it was like before so there's some familiarity the purpose of striving towards something the fun of playing sport you know it's like playing football versus going for a run it's what you find most enjoyable um, and then creating that space for clarity of thought there's some a theory called unconscious thought theory utt and it says that we try and work out the problems consciously like a maths problem you know a plus b equals c but the more complex problems we can't solve with our conscious mind it needs the space for the subconscious to start working it out and when you do go for a run or you know it's like when you're in the shower and you have those insights creating that space um is really powerful and especially when you're processing so much stuff that must have been really great to, to be able to have that um at that time and, and also have that routine a couple of things i want to i'm really curious about one um what was it like to to compete in the paralympic games oh it was insane it was so weird because it's just something you watch on tv yeah. Like it's not it's not something that, that people do you know it's what uh it's what athletes do it's what people that are cut from a different cloth do um so yeah it, it was a crazy crazy period you know a it was an intense 
it was intense training period to go from the Invictus Games, where I was a good amateur, to turning myself into, uh, from a mindset perspective, as well as a physical perspective, into an elite athlete that's prepared to go out and, and compete in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people in a stadium and, and millions of people on TV. Um, so it have been from September 2014 at the end of the Invictus Games to August 2016, when I got on the plane to go to Rio, you know, that period would just flew by absolutely flew by because it, everything was so intense you know trying to get from one state to the, to the next as, as, as quickly as possible it, it was a crazy a crazy time where I didn't really uh, have the opportunity or space to process everything that was going on mm. um, and then suddenly I was in Rio well I was in Belo Horizonte which is where we did our, our holding camp we were there for about two weeks before we went into Rio itself but suddenly I was there I had all this GB kit and there were these these same athletes that I'd seen on TV in London mm-hmm. were there next to me on the training field and you know I, I was there as an equal and, and ready to go off and, and compete for my country under this under the same flag and same uniform as everyone else uh, and then the competition period comes around and again just insane it's the biggest disability sports competition you can possibly enter mm-hmm. uh, and I was there on the start line and not only on the start line I managed to come home with a with a medal after you know I felt like I'd just cuffed it for a few years um I had my brother as my strength and conditioning coach uh, and I had a Swiss photographer was my sprint coach and we just we had very little input from you know the national government body British athletics at that point and we just managed to somehow find ourselves at a Paralympic Games which is insane uh, but it was a real turning point actually the games for me in terms of my outlook on on life because up, up until that point I was probably still recovering you know I hadn't didn't feel like I'd recovered from a psychological perspective yeah. uh, or adjusted properly to uh, primarily to the loss of career you know I, I felt like I dealt with the legs well enough the, the physical injuries well enough but I hadn't really dealt with the loss of career and what that meant going forward from there uh, and it didn't help with things like you know newspaper reports or media articles or whatever it might be they always refer to me as as Dave Henson who's a a former soldier or a former captain mm. or an injured soldier mm. uh, they always refer to me by something that happened in the past um but then as soon as the paralympics were complete and i'd come home with a bronze medal people referred to me as a paralympian straight away so yeah. it's dave henson paralympian or bronze medalist at the rio paralympics uh, and then it would go on to you know, former servicemen or injured in afghanistan or wherever it might be so i've the, the winning or the, or the achievements i made in in brazil turned me from someone who was constantly referred to by past experience to someone who is being referred to in the present um, and that ability to be in the present inherently gave me the ability to have a future and see a future and push me onto other things and into a new career and everything like that so it was a real turning point so yeah the, the experience of competing for your country at the Paralympics was amazing but from a personal perspective it was what it allowed me to to be from someone who in the past to someone in the present was was the most profound bit so that real shift of purpose and identity both yeah. at the same time as well yeah i think that's really important something that gets missed as well um and how that created a turning point when you were there and you create that achievement and then it's like well this is who i am now in the present and yeah. then you can go on and and then it's that you know what's going to be next for you yeah so what what is next for you uh next so uh, I tend not to like just having one thing. Uh, I like to have lots of different things going on. I don't know why. Uh, I don't think it's particularly uh, conducive to optimum performance, but you know, it's just the way that I am. So yeah. uh, when I went, when I was going through the um, the Rio process, I just started my PhD at the time. Um, 
So uh, I finished Rio, came back and I, I finished my, my PhD. It was all about um, my PhD and the focus of my research was all about uh, trying to find ways in which you can improve functional outcome for people who suffered the same or similar amputations to myself. Um, so I came through the back end of that PhD and I, I took up a job uh, at Imperial College which was all about uh, developing new high functioning low-cost prosthetics for uh, low middle-income countries developing countries uh, so people who, who have next to no access to rehabilitation services no physiotherapists hardly any access to um, prosthetic products it's all about providing them with a technological solution um, to some of their mobility problems and I've been in this role for a year and a half so pretty much is uh, all of it has been compromised in some way shape or form by covid but it's been an incredible experience of just learning how to how to make prosthetics what makes prosthetics um you know, what makes a prosthetic appropriate, you know, what kind of functionality you need to have in there to, to enable someone to be able to walk in, um, not just a, a, a good functional way, but also in terms of um, your onward health, you know, how we can uh, start to design out uh, osteoarthritis, how we can make sure that your bone fun your, your bone health is maintained over the, the long period of time. And, you know, it's in incredibly rewarding. And I feel like I sort of enabled a shift for, for, for people uh, in developing countries as a result yeah and and so it's amazing so that hopefully that can provide them the same level of you know um opportunity that people have in in the more affluent countries yeah hopefully i mean we've, we've created this whole program and partnered with some big names um to deliver on it so we'll see what the next couple of years bring but yeah why should someone in, in rwanda not have the same opportunities that i I had, you know, it's, it's just about health equality, equal access to healthcare, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that. It sounds really exciting. It is good. Fantastic. So I know we've only got literally less than a minute left. So um, one final question, if that's all right. Shoot. Okay. Um, what piece of advice would you give to somebody who is really struggling? They're going through a, a difficult time right now and perhaps they don't know what to what to focus on to get through it what would be something that you would recommend for them well i think we've alluded to this um you know throughout when we've been talking today um for me routine is the absolute key because it's, it's that familiarity uh and that you, the, the fact that you don't have to to process what it is that you're going to do next you've got you've got a routine and this is what i do next it's written down it's documented it's in front of you um what do i have to do now i have to get myself from this place to this place and do that that's all i have to do and that's all i have to think about for the next hour that so, so i think that for me is absolutely the, the primary first step is to establish a routine you know a decent sleep routine a decent morning routine where you you get up and you have the same process that you do day in day out always have some exercise in there you know whether that's yoga or stretching or even just breathing techniques but also you know the, the high levels of physical activity gym sessions or cardio whatever it might be you've got to have that routine in place because it's that familiarity that allows you to uh, start to process the things that are going on on a day-to-day -day basis and then i think the other key piece of advice is to have uh you know we, we talk about smart targets all the time you know, measurable realistic achievable targets um, that you can get within a specified time period um, that are written down and that i said it already achievable those things are key and it's how i broke down my phd is how i broke down my military training it's how i broke down um, all of my training programs for for rio it was take this massive goal that i've got which is getting to the 
Paralympics, for example, and I'll break that down into monthly targets or even weekly targets, which I need to go off and achieve. And suddenly you take this big challenge and you break it into bite-sized chunks and it becomes achievable. Uh, so I think it's those, those two things. It's a, it's a routine mixed in with realistic, smart, smart targets. Yeah, I think that, that's incredible advice. You know, if it looks like the whole mountain, something you've got to climb, then you're not going to want to. But if it's important to you and you break it down, then great. And that routine um, sounds so simple, but the amount of power that that can give you and space to be able to create everything else is, is so important. So really great advice. Uh, exactly. It's, yeah. all, it's that thing, the old saying of how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. Well, um. Yeah, I think that's a, a great place for us to um, conclude this chat. And, and look, thank you so much for joining me. There's so many more questions that I've got that um, I will be throwing your way very soon. Um, but yeah, thanks. I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure, my friend. All right, thanks so much. And but I want to leave everyone with a, with a quote. That's when something bad happens, you have three choices. You can either let it define you, let it destroy you, or you can let it strengthen you. That's by Dr. Zeus. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you soon and big love. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of the Perception Coach podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with someone that you love so you can spread the love and get it out there. You can also find me on Instagram at the Perception Coach. You can message me directly there or you can contact me on my website, www.theperceptioncoach.com. Have a great day. I'll see you soon. And as always, big love.